This is episode 398 of the AWS podcast, released on October 13th, 2020. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast and this very special series about the well-architected program. I'm joined on the show today by Brian Carlson, who's a solution architect. He also is and always will be a TAM and is the operational excellence lead for well-architected here at AWS. G'day, Brian. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, good day, Sam. Thank you for coming on board. Now, we're going to talk a lot about well-architected and in particular the, the operational pillar and some of the changes that have happened to that. But let's talk about you. You've got this role, operational excellence. Who are you to tell us about operational excellence? (laughs) Tell us about yourself. Well, I was a TAM. So my focus when I first joined AWS was definitely on operations and the customer that way. But before I came to AWS, I was the technical lead on an international network that had a disaster recovery role. And when that's the situation, it's really easy to focus on operations when availability might have consequences for people. So in that role, I also worked with the process lead, and between the two of us, we had a secondary focus on continuous improvement. So that really leads naturally into the role I have today, where I'm trying to help customers improve their operations. And so really that that passion for doing what we do better is a key element here, because I guess the fundamental thing of running systems, particularly large-scale systems, is we never get it right all the time but we only improve if we learn from what we do wrong. Absolutely. And really, realistically, if you haven't made a significant mistake and had it had an impact, you probably aren't doing operations. Well, (laughs) maybe you are. Yeah. Well, look, it happens to, I think all of us in IT, at least once in our career, have had that moment where we've, we've pressed something on the keyboard and then you get that sort of creeping, prickly warmness on the back of your neck where you go, oh, I've just made a really big mistake. <laughs> this is gonna I like to refer to that as the, the oh no second. That's uh-huh. the period of time between hitting enter and regret. It's, it's like a quantum state, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, in, in the spirit of sharing vulnerabilities and, and uh, lessons learned, tell us about the worst operations outage you've ever been involved in. Let's say. I think legitimately we could say I caused it, but there were contributing factors. Well, the universe had something to say about it. So, you know, it's not just you. As did the engineer who proposed the change. I did cause an outage on a network where I took out uh, one-seventh of the United States. Now, it wasn't that, uh, it was just that new sessions could not be established off the network. We tried to implement uh, guaranteed syslog. And that means that the three-way handshake has to happen for every message from the router to the server. But it turns out, we hadn't done appropriate load testing. And the rate of transaction starting in production was much higher than what we could generate in the lab. And as a result, we had a race condition and nothing started because the requests timed out before the sessions were approved. Now, happily, while it was easy to do, it was also easy to roll back the change. So we recovered very quickly, mm-hmm. but I did take out one seventh of the United States on that network. So definitely, you have to consider that things go wrong all the time. And they can go wrong at scale. And I guess the, the, the bad news story is, was you know, tested in production. The, the good news story is you had a rollback plan and many situations don't have a rollback plan, which is not a great place to be. So at least you could make that mistake and kind of uh, live to tell the tale afterwards. It's true. Planning for failure is definitely, a, well, it is a best practice inside of OE. Exactly. So let's talk firstly, just briefly about well-architected. Remind our listeners what well-architected is and what customers can do with it. Sure. Well-architected is a framework, and that means you take from it what you find value in. So it's not a set of obligations. It's a set of guidance to help you make more effective architectures in the cloud. It's about understanding the risks of operating your workloads and knowing where improvement can occur. 
So Willard Connected was formed specifically around the idea that we need to provide better guidance to our customers to support their outcomes. Now, turns out OE came later because we then recognized that where our customers may have good architectures and frequently our customers have inspired applications they're creating, their core capability might be in that creation and not in operations. So OE followed from that based on the number of events that we saw our customers having. And so the guidance in OE will hopefully help customers avoid those risks coming to pass and having impacts on their workloads. And that's a really interesting element of the well-architected program is it's designed in, in the concept of pillars and lenses. And, and the pillars are really key focus areas that everyone should consider. And then lenses are specialty focus areas depending on what you're doing. So for example, there's a, a serverless lens. But what what happened at the start is, yeah, we, we sort of said, oh, we're going to focus on performance and reliability and resilience and cost and all these good things. And I think it all points for someone who's running a system of any import scale or meaningfulness. They very quickly recognise that technology is made of people. And if you don't get the people right, and you know, many people would have heard, you know, technology people process. If you don't get that right, bad stuff happens. And so what are some of the focuses that, that I guess, override or inform the operational excellence pillar? What, what really makes it what it is before we get into the details of what it does? So operational excellence, and in fact, the pillar has changed over time. We talk far less about operations outcomes and we talk about business and organizational outcomes because you can't subtract that from the content. I'd like to talk about the three-legged stool of businesses where if the business and development and operations are not working together, you can't step up and elevate yourself. Well, you can, but there's only two legs or one leg on a stool. It is a balancing act that is very rarely successful. So OE focuses on ensuring that system level awareness and that everyone is working towards a common goal and that we understand the outcomes we're going for and that everyone is acting to support that because in the end, operations and development exist to serve the business outcomes. So we have to take that perspective to start with. And does that make OE the the most important of the pillars? (laughs) So no. But OE does have the most important question in all of well-architected. And I'm going to paraphrase it for ease. The first question is, how do you determine what your priorities are? But what it's really saying is, do you know what you're doing and why? Because everything that every decision you make has to be based on that. If we're all working towards the same goals. Now, as to which is the most important pillar? It's somewhere between security and reliability, I think, because without security, there's no trust with your customer. Without reliability, you're not actually serving your customer. So I am not going to make the call on which of those is most important, but you can't ignore either. So as long as you actually know what you're trying to accomplish, then it should inform all the decisions in all the other pillars. And that's why it comes first. It's a pretty existential type question. So if we think about the, the OE pillar, What are the main focus areas that have been designed in? Well, there's an update, obviously. And I've taken that first question, which is largely unchanged, and added more content to it. So instead of just focusing on having an organization understand the requirements they're trying to satisfy and those that are placed upon them, I've expanded it out to include your organization in general. So we talk about your operating model. And that is really mapping the relationships between your teams and having your teams understand how they rely upon others for their success and how others rely upon them for their success. It may sound like a very basic thing to know, but there's no worse time than during an incident to try and identify who owns a resource or who can act on something. So the operating model is really about understanding that within your organization. Beyond that, I go into uh, organizational culture. 
And this is an interesting one because often organizational culture varies and may be very ingrained in an organization. But the important thing there is that we have to examine and ensure that we as an organization are supporting our team members effectively so our team members can effectively support our operational outcomes and our business outcomes. So organizations that big new part. Beyond that, prepare, which is about setting yourself up for success, telemetry, development tool chain, and making informed decisions to uh, transition into production. There's a lot to unpack there. But beyond that, we have operate, which focuses very much on monitoring. And I kind of feel like I need to clarify. When I talk about monitoring, I'm talking about looking for metrics that indicate an actions required, as opposed to observability where we're collecting telemetry that will help us learn what the problem was when it happens and we don't understand it. So monitoring, we have a action that we'll take. Observability, we're using it to investigate. And then finally, evolve, which is all about continuous improvement. That's just the easiest way to put it. It's about ensuring that your organization is set up to continuously improve, to self-evaluate, to feedback loops so that you can stop bad things from happening again and so you can make people's lives easier. Well, as, as I like to say, we want to make new mistakes, not the same old mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And so if I'm sitting here and I'm going, okay, well, my team's an agile team. We're not just DevOps, we're DevSecOps. We've got it locked in. We've got all the automation you could think of. Why would I even think about it? I mean, when I have an ops team, why do I need to think about the, the operational excellence pillar? Well, you have automated a lot of processes. So you have gone through the exercise of understanding the requirements of your internal teams, requirements of your customers, and then you determine what actions were necessary. You do have an ops team. There is that process where you did the definition and where you implemented procedures. And no doubt you have feedback loops that you would then act on to improve your operations. So even though you may, to a large degree, be automated and have tool chain supporting you, you still have that operations role there. So you you can't dismiss it. It has to continue. And when things go wrong, you need to act on them. So operations is always there, even if you are casting in the form of a DevSecOps team. What about, I guess, the, the reverse case? Let's say I'm a team that's just starting out in the cloud and in AWS, and I've got a couple of small systems, but most of my systems and infrastructure are running on-premises. Do I just apply well-architected to my Amazon workload or could I use it for other things? So within OE, the best practices are in fact best practices not specific to AWS. So they apply to any workload. The thing to consider is that when you're transitioning from on-prem to the cloud, there are some enabling capabilities that are going to change the way you work. There's no longer a need to touch a physical device. And that really opens up the window for operations as code and for infrastructure as code so that the teams that otherwise would have been doing a, a hands-on maintenance activity are instead transitioning to configuring something in software. But it still applies for those workloads that are still on-prem. These are things that you should consider and should evaluate around your workload. It is always the right thing to understand the risks of making a change. And that's part of an operation readiness review. So you should apply those best practices so you understand the risk even in your on-premises environment and make an informed decision. If something does go awry, you want to understand the risk and be able to respond to it in a timely fashion. So the best practices apply on any cloud for that matter. Now, as well, I don't even talk about any AWS services until you get down into methodologies for implementation. And then the AWS services are used as the examples of how you could accomplish it specifically on AWS. But you won't see references to that in the tool until you get down to implementation plans. Yeah, it's, it's definitely broadly applicable. And before we dive into maybe some of the, the, the changes that have happened recently, how 
do you come up with these new questions? Like are you just sort of, you know, sitting there looking wistfully off into the distance and thinking, oh, this would be a good question? Or is there <laughs> maybe some slightly more formal approach that's taken? There is a far more formal approach. I do use industry research. I do have many interactions with our customers, some of them direct and some of them through our field teams where I get more information. I do like to engage with our customers directly as frequently as I can in order to get insights about their experience in their kind of industry. So I am using a lot of the sources that are common. But at the same time, we have a really wonderful operations community and I realize this is an awkward thing to actually believe is true, but there are operations enthusiasts. We do exist. We have a very large community of people (laughs) who contribute best practices and bring additional information in and talk about what's working in their customers. So it really is, I might be in some ways an aggregator of the the collective knowledge, but it's, it's research, it's experience with the customers, it's experiments we perform, and it's working directly with the service teams because... What we can bring to the customer, we can also bring back to the service teams frequently and make it so that customers have easier adoption. And you talked in the in some of the new new questions. We mentioned you know, that that organizational focus and how are we supporting business outcomes, et cetera. But there are also some some really interesting changes in the area of both governance and and also the the evolution of individuals too. So maybe talk us through some of those elements. Sure. Prior to the change, we have a best practice around evaluating our compliance requirements. And that's really looking at regulatory requirements that are enforced upon you. Frequently, they will have consequences if you don't satisfy them. And we're also talking about things like industry best practices that might be optional, but if something does go wrong, in a court of law, you might be judged more harshly. So generally, it's a good idea to adhere to them. But In both cases, it is in fact a choice what you're going to do. It may be a mandate with legal repercussions, but it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to do it. I'm not making a call about what the right thing is. But when that call is made, we're talking about governance. Governance in this context that we're using is the requirements that your organization places upon you and your workload. It's easy to think about this in terms of if you're starting out and you're you're doing the next thing, are you going to implement compliance requirements before you, you have completed product requirements for a not live system? And your governance is going to be the policy from your leaders down through the implementations from your technologists or your teams around what we need to do and why. And compliance is the part that you're obligated to externally. So I think it's really important to not just look outside, but to look inside. And this one is inspired in part by customer interactions where teams were not aware of the mandates upon them from their own organizations. So it's important to look both inwards and outwards about these requirements. And what about the people? I think as as we sort of somewhat jokingly said that, you know, technology is made of people, but it is. So you, you can evolve the operations themselves, but how do you improve what people know and what their capabilities are so they can operate better? Well, the first answer is that it's not implement a service. The services will never actually address an organizational issue that really requires adopting your best practices. So with respect to people, if we really want to be successful, then there has to be an executive sponsorship sort of role where they're actually pushing for the success of the teams and encouraging that to happen. Frequently, I've encountered that uh, people just did not feel free to actually take action. And so actually formalizing the fact that you can do something when something is wrong and that no one will be upset if you didn't make the right call, but you can escalate and ask for additional guidance. That whole no blame scenario is important because if you want to have the additional opportunity to avert an incident to, to prevent an impact, then you have to be accepting of there being some false positives. So beyond that, 
where we really get into where it benefits organizations is that you have to encourage experimentation. Now, I want to land on this one hard. An experiment that yields an outcome that you did not want was a success. The experiment has revealed a course of action that will not lead to the outcomes that you want. If experimentation is being performed in an organization and they don't get what they want out of it, and the person is punished for it, then that's going to stop people from even wanting to perform an experiment. So a lot of these come back to the acknowledgement of the needs of the organization must allow for the individuals to take action and to understand that things don't always work out. And Werner Pogo always says it, right? Everything breaks always. Always. And, and if you know what the results of something you're going to do is, it's not an experiment. It's a process. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? absolutely that's true. But beyond that, one that comes up alarmingly often, and it's not something people can always fix, is uh, if you can resource your teams appropriately. And if you're a startup and you have so much money, that might not be the case, but it's something to bear in mind. My favorite best practice of all in the organization section is actually about seeking diverse opinions within and across your teams. This comes back to the way we operate inside of AWS with that large enthusiast community. And that is that you have to have the multiple perspectives. They have more insights. The more people that are involved, the more diverse their backgrounds, experience, et cetera, the more insight you're going to have. And I think embracing that diversity and, and providing accessibility for individuals makes a huge difference. If you talk just about accessibility, people who deal with disabilities all the time spend their lives problem solving to get around those challenges. And that's not a skill that necessarily everyone has, and they're required to have it. So bringing people in can only provide additional benefits, but you got to make sure that they're heard and understood and acknowledged. So inclusion comes in there as well. Very much so, very much so. Now, now Brian, I made you reveal your, uh, you know, turning off a certain portion of the uh, continental United States at, at scale. What about a, a cool one that you got to work on that you think is, you know, was just, you were pretty chuffed about it. I am. I'm a bit of a geek. I can admit that. The coolest thing I ever did at AWS was working with the NASA JPL Mars 2020 mission. Can I say hi to Ray and Alex? You just did? Awesome. Those guys are awesome. I really love the team and all of JPL. But one of the reasons that that is such an interesting situation is that they came to us before they started development. And so we got the opportunity to review how they had planned their architecture and their operations. And it turns out Space is kind of a hard constraint. You really don't have the option to go and push a reset button on something in orbit around Mars. Yeah, there's, there's no crash cart available in that situation. There's no crash cart. And in fact, doing a firmware update is a uh, an action of last hope. Well, well, given that when I do it on my router at home, I've got my sort of, you know, everything tensed for success. <laughs> doing it in space, orders of magnitude. <laughs> do, do you still also have the paper clip so you can reset the factory defaults? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so with Mars 2020, they're sending a probe to Mars. And there's a couple things there. The way the system works is that scientists plan a day in space. And that information is sent to a ground station, is sent to a satellite around Earth that must have visibility on the satellite around Mars. That goes to the satellite on Mars and that goes down to the device on the planet, which then does its day in space and then reports back up. It goes to the satellite, back to the satellite around Earth, if it's visible, down to the ground station. And then it goes into the set of activities that are going to be performed. So it's got to be decoded. It's got to be presented for analysis. The analysis has to be performed. The next day in space has to be planned. That has to be codified. And then it has to go back up again. And how do you ensure this happens? Because a day in space is valued at like 500 
$1,000, I think. It might be more. It's probably going up every minute. I suppose so. But in that scenario, you don't have much room to act. And so when we were talking to them, we focused very much on that chain of activities that are performed in from receiving the information through to sending information back. Because in that entire chain, there's a limited amount of, of slack time. So essentially, they have to finish their work within eight to 10 hours to actually have visibility across the satellites. So what we focused on was optimizing operation activities so that as workflow went through, if it was delayed anywhere, we alerted earlier because we're eating our safety window. And so we focused on the interactions between the different silos to make them more unified. So that if our problems, we are monitoring for the outcome from each of the activities and not for the performance of the overall system. It kind of comes back to, are your microservices effective in scope of your entire application? But we learned other stuff there too. Like if the teams didn't have the, the same degree of integration that they do today, where now they talk to each other rapidly, if there's any form of event, so that they can all be all hands on deck and identify any sundry issues. So that kind of operation situation is awesome. That and JPL is, you know, spaceships and stuff all all over the place and satellites. And it's just a really cool place with a lot of cool people. They've got the coolest stuff. That's very, very true. In fact, I think they're launching at the end of the month. Oh, wow. Cool. That'd be exciting. So, so Brian, there, there was a time when uh, in the early days of Well Architected where the only way you could get access to this was to read the white paper or to speak to your friendly local solution architect who would run a, a little program to track everything and, and help you assess but that wasn't good enough. And you know, one of our leadership principles is insist on the highest standards and another one is customer obsession. So this is now available as, of course, a service to our customers. How do they use it and how much does it cost? Well, much like Well Architected's content, it's free to use. We want our customers to be successful. And the emphasis is on getting the information they need to be successful. Now, the tool itself is a self-guided review that takes you through a series of questions, the questions from Well Architected, and asks you about your experience with the best practices. Do you perform them? Are they there for you? And it has links to supporting information. And as you go through, you get to deeper and deeper content that gets down to the point of helping you implement. But from the top level, we're saying, we're asking the questions, asking you to respond to them. And then at the end of the review, we provide information to you about risks in your environment. Now, ideally along the way, this was a learning experience. And I highly recommend using the tool when you're in your planning stage as the easiest introduction to the content or look at the appendix in the framework white paper. It has all the best practices and questions right there. But if you're not comfortable doing this alone, and the reason we have the tool is because there's only so many essays, we can't scale. So creating the tool creates a mechanism for you to do your review, establish a milestone, and then track the changes over time. Come back to the tool, review, check off the things you've also satisfied. So effectively, it can be a checklist for the activities that you want to perform to improve your architecture and your operations. But beyond that, there are other ways to get assistance. The Well Architected Partner Program exists to help consulting partners work with a customer if they want that kind of assistance and get expertise around it. There's a ProServe team called the Operations Integration Team, which focuses specifically on operations. There is also enterprise support, which, well, TAMs focus on operations and they have their own operations review program that leverages the content from Well Architected. So there's lots of room for self-directed action and for enabling yourself. And if you want help, that's available too. Exactly. There's multiple channels, avenues and, and escalations you can use. And the, the thing to remember, I think that you point out really well, which is 
you don't just do it once. You do it as a continuum throughout your project and through the lifetime of, of the system as well. It's not sort of one and done. When you look at the Mars 2020 mission, that's a great example of why do it early. They made specific changes in their approach before investing time and effort, recognizing that they hadn't considered something. And that opportunity to learn that early, well, it's much cheaper to make a change before you've invested time and effort. Much better to have two-way doors so that you can reverse a decision. But once there's a, some sunk cost, it's very hard to let go of what you've already done. Once the vehicle has been launched, <laughs> it's now going <laughs> we back. We can't go up and update the firmware, it's true. Oops. It's en route. We'll be waiting. And so you can find AWS Well Architected right in your AWS console. It's right there as a, as a service that you just click on and away you go. So really useful and you can select which region you store your Well Architected in. You can give other people access to them. It's 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 quite a, a neat little tool. There's more to it too. We have the Well-Architected Labs. There is a link to it through the Well-Architected page, but it's also wellarchitectedlabs.com. And we are forever updating that with additional content to support what we see our customers struggling with. Everything starts with our customer. We work backwards from there. So as we see challenges, we try to address that with additional information. It's how we prioritize. We also develop a series of concepts. Whenever I'm asked a question from the field team or from a customer and I realize the level of depth of the answer I want to have, I try to capture that and then publish that as concept content. So um, inside the well-architected site, you can find additional information about these specific concepts and it comes at various levels. Sometimes it's just a discussion around it and sometimes it goes into what you should consider when you're implementing it. So there's a wide variety of information. On that note, if anyone has feedback on it, or they're looking for something, they should share it because we'll act on it. How do they go about giving that feedback? Because you're right, we do. We love to get feedback of all kinds. Oh, I suppose that's true. Of course, within the tool, there is the feedback option that is common across all the AWS console interfaces. So that feedback button is the place to leave that feedback because that way it gets through to the people that deeply care about that feedback and want to make a change. So Brian, I'm thinking that as part of your own operational excellence for maintaining the operational excellence pillar of Well Architected, Reviewing those inputs are, are very important to you. Oh, absolutely. And it doesn't matter where they come from. The source is, is treated consistently the same way. Everyone's a customer. I don't look at any details about the account or the organization. It is feedback we can act on. It all has value. And Brian, people can also reach out to you directly too, because I know you're an enthusiast of this topic. So uh, what's your Twitter <laughs> handle that people can, can say, hey, I, have I got something for you? They can always reach me on Twitter at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Carlson, C-A-R-L-S-O-N, Q-E-D. No spaces in there. So Brian Carlson, Q-E-D. And I monitor that regularly. I often search for any references to operational excellence in AWS and try and answer questions that I see emerge in the Twitter sphere. So all of the filler leads do this. And so feel free to reach out to us. We'll respond. It's a good thing. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for coming on and expanding a little bit on operational excellence for us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place to do it. And until next time, keep on building.